So today I'm going to kick, let you kick off uh, how we're seeing, how you're seeing the world today, and then we'll we'll, we'll turn it over to Salita. Thanks, Mark, and uh, thanks for the 36 weeks plus the uh, <clears throat> excuse me month or two we were traveling together beforehand, and also thanks to the community for uh, actually listening to me for 36 weeks or the better part of it. And also for sharing their insights. And if you go back to just what's occurred the last couple of weeks, whether it was the uh, session by Tom Jump, the one by Bill Doikler, Simons, Duncans, or Sarah's, the the insights shared are just phenomenal. So it it does it it is the community that makes this so successful. And today's program looks fabulous. So I'm going to move pretty quickly. Um, who would have thought that? Uh, Nine months ago, we would be talking about the market back at record levels and bullish sentiment at as high a level as we've seen since uh, 2011, according to the AAI survey. Uh, so up at closing in on 50% bullish, which uh, the question is, are we too bullish or not right now? This is another look from uh, Ed Yardeni. I'm going to show a couple of slides from him on stock market bullishness going back uh uh, back to the uh, late 80s. Uh, this is the stock price, and this is a, one of the big questions. Where do we go from here, and what are we looking at? Edyard Denny came out with targets uh, the other day of, uh, for the end of this year, 3740 on the S&P, going up to 4290 next year and 4620 in uh, 2022. So he's worried that uh, rather than a pullback from here, we're going to actually have an aggressive melt-up as one of the risks to the outlook. Uh, I thought that was an interesting perspective. It also contrasted back to 99 and today with a look at the NASDAQ, and I thought this was really interesting. The slow growth environment we've had for the last decade since the financial crisis has muted some of the upside. The NASDAQ is actually led by quite a bit, but uh, compared to back then, it's a very different scenario, and these businesses are very different as well. They are uh, not business plan businesses, but massive uh, growers. And digitalization is one of our key themes for next year. One of the scary charts is stocks trading above their 200-day moving average with 90% uh, or more trading above their 200-day moving average in the S&P. Uh, usually a bit of a discomfort uh, to that level. Uh, so just quickly, uh, are investors too bullish? At ARS, we focus on corporate profits, interest rates, and inflation rates as the basis for securities valuation. And we're looking at a rebound in corporate profits in 21, uh, continuing to move up. Uh, you know, we're looking at a pretty positive uh, back to 19 levels, if not slightly higher. We think interest rates can move up, but not meaningfully. And while we've, as you know, have been in the deflationary camp and remain that way, we can see some pickup in inflation uh, towards the second part of next year, but more so in the second half of 2022, uh, which is a ways out. So we're not particularly concerned about that. But the general trend is positive for equities uh, as we look at it. We think investors should really be focused on the secular issues. Uh, digitalization is one of our big themes, but clearly policy is going to matter. Uh, the election in Georgia is going to matter. Um, but we think that the, dy the dynamics of the economy right now will push us towards the secular themes, and that's where you want to invest. Uh, we believe that the uh, benefits will not be shared equally. 
Uh, and uh, next week, I want to show you what corporate uh, profits are, cash flows and corporate debt and what the debt ratios look like. But the debt ratios are actually quite positive, given the high levels of uh, debt that corporations have taken on. Uh, but we think that it'll be a very uneven in favor of active management again. And we still believe you should avoid the tails, the low, lowest valuation, highest valuation stocks. Some people got into the really beaten up stuff back in March, but not enough. I think this is a tough time to be going into either the highest or lowest valuation areas. Um, we think cash positions and cash flows and manageable debt ratios will actually be a big push for the large uh, companies and help a lot of the dividend payers do better. And some of the small cap companies will do better and the market should be higher. But we do expect a pullback along the way. But we think we're in a bullish trend up. So, Mark, with that, I'll stop. Morning, everyone. It's a uh, pleasure to be with you uh, to share our UBS outlook for 2021. Um, we don't have a slide yet, but um, I will tell you, we are calling 2021 uh, the year of renewal. Uh, from a macro perspective, uh, we see renewed growth in most regions of the world, uh, with the U.S. growing by about 4% next year, Europe about 6%, and Asia, Japan around 8%, all uh, well above trend. And more importantly, we believe that growth will accelerate throughout the year as some of the pent-up consumer demand from recent lockdowns in Europe and certain part of the U.S. Uh, is spent throughout the year. So, of course, the main driver of this acceleration is really the rollout of vaccines. Uh, we received great news throughout the past month, ranging from the positive efficacy results from Pfizer and Moderna to the actual rollout of the Pfizer vaccine in both the U.S. and the U.K., our base case assumes that a majority of the U.S. population is able to receive a vaccine by the middle of next year, and this pushes us closer to economic normalization. Now, given our view of rising economic growth, we see higher but not very high inflation. In other words, uh, we see higher inflation than current levels, but only modestly as there are still large components of the inflation basket that are experiencing disinflationary pressures like rents, right? Rents will recover as more employers call um, workers back to the office, but this will take time. Uh, so we see year-on-year -year core CPI moving from uh, where it has been this year, about 1.2% to 1.6% uh, next year. Inflation should cyclically rise, but still remain below the Fed's target. In terms of rates, um, because we expect inflation to remain relatively subdued, we see the Fed on hold for the foreseeable future. Uh, markets are not pricing in the first Fed hike until uh, 2024, and Fed's willingness to tolerate slightly higher inflation means that the first rate hike will likely come even after inflation reaches 2%. So in this environment, uh, we think 10-year yields can move slightly higher than we are there today. Um, I, I, you know, if the vaccine rollout uh, goes really smoothly, you know, we might be able to get to um, 120, 130, maybe even um, on the 10-year. Um, but I would say, you know, the pace of it is as important as as the level, and I don't think it would be disruptive if it's gradually grinds higher. Um, one final note on the market implications, um, maybe on the U.S. election outcome. 
which seems, which at this point seems like many months ago. So we see a Biden presidency and a divided government as a good outcome for equity markets. Um, while we, you know, we do need to wait until the conclusion of the Georgia runoffs to have complete clarity. And our base case is that Republicans maintain the control of the Senate. And with this makeup of government, we think that less market-friendly policies like higher taxes and regulations are off the table. And we've been encouraged by also the revival of fiscal negotiations and expect a relief package um, to be passed uh, by, by, the, by the end of the year. So with that drop, backdrop, uh, maybe I'll just get to our views on uh, some specific markets. Uh, Mark, I see you have them up here. So maybe we move to slide two here. Okay. Um, okay. So um, we see three major pillars for investing in the year ahead. Uh, I think, Mark, it might be one before. Uh, okay. It's the one that has the three sort of pillars. Um, this is your 55 slide deck. Oh, no, no, no. We sound like 10 pages. Okay. Keep, keep, keep okay, going. Okay. I'll just keep on going. Okay. I just sound only like, you know, less than 10 pages. Okay. So we see three major pillars for investing in the year ahead. Okay. One, diversifying into the next leg of the equity rally. Uh, two, the continued hunt for yield. And three, investors should position for uh, for dollar weakness. So I'll start with our view on equities and where we see opportunities. Um, so going forward, right, we believe areas that underperformed in 2020 could outperform twenty in 2021 as the economic recovery continues. And we see a preview uh, already. We saw that uh, back in November uh, when the market rallied as leaders were areas that lagged so far this year. Uh, specifically, we continue to favor developed markets, small and mid caps over uh, large cap companies. Even with the outperformance over the last month, U.S. small caps still trail large caps uh, by about 120 basis points year to date and are attractively valued on a relative basis. Uh, I think it's a similar picture for mid caps, uh, which have lagged by roughly 350 basis points. And um, what we have seen this year right, is a decoupling of small and mid-caps from their traditional macro drivers like the ISM manufacturing index, inflation expectations, and the shape uh, of the yield curve. So as the economy normalizes, we believe that these smaller companies should trade more in line with historical correlations and should catch up to the improvements that we have seen in these macro indicators. Um, but we think that this decade will feature stronger performance outside of the U.S. Um, so in terms of international markets, we stick with the theme of preferring markets that have lagged, uh, like certain cyclical parts of Europe that should benefit from a rebound in trade. We also like emerging market value, which has lagged emerging market growth by about 70% over the last decade. The Encouraging signs from the AstraZeneca vaccine are, I think, particularly important for emerging market countries. And this is because they have the largest agreements in place with AstraZeneca, given that their vaccine does not require extremely cold storage like Pfizer vaccine, making it easier to distribute. 
We also see emerging market value um, as an interesting opportunity because it offers an attractive dividend yield around 3% for those looking for additional income. And I know everybody is looking for income these days. Um, so I think that's a maybe good segue to one of the major themes in our year ahead um, outlook, which is the continued hunt uh, for yield. And we can go to that. Yes, that's slide. Thank you, Mark. So even with an expected rise in global economic growth next year, we do not foresee a sharp rise in interest rates. Uh, and this is in part because we believe that the Fed will be highly sensitive to a rise in rates given the fragile state of the economy. Um, and because we see a muted rise in nominal U.S. Treasury yields, um, you know, and also the prospect of rising inflation, we still favor tips over nominals. Um, as we show in, I think, charts uh, on the left on slide four, uh, with over $18 trillion of negative yielding debts at this point, uh, most of which is concentrated in developed markets and is likely to grow with more stimulus, uh, we think that emerging market dollar-denominated bonds offer compelling yields at around 4.5%. And also, this is maybe for investors that are that have a you know higher allocation to international, but even for U.S. clients who uh, venture out, Asian high yield looks particularly attractive with yields around seven and a half percent. We also think that private markets uh, can help to enhance the yield component of the portfolios for investors that are willing to take on additional illiquidity and credit risk. Private markets you know, can provide enhanced yield opportunities through direct lending, uh, core real estate or infrastructure funds. So, you know, there are still some opportunities, some interesting opportunities to generate income, even in a low yield environment. Uh, maybe we can turn to the next slide um, here. So I would say one area of the outlook where I get the most questions is on our view for a weaker U.S. dollar, given that you know it is down around 12% since the March high. And we think that with global growth improving, the demand for state havens is likely to decline, which means further weakness here. And that's not to mention that continued budget and trade deficits are likely to weigh on the currency. Uh, while monetary policy remains extremely accommodative with the Fed on hold, as we discussed, um, and we showed it on the chart on the left on uh, slide five here. So for U.S. clients, the best way, I think, to position for this is to diversify some equity exposure to international markets. And even with the pullback more recently, we still view gold as a good way to hedge against negative real yields and, and other weakness. So that's, that's sort of an overview of our thinking on the year ahead. Um, but in our outlook this year, we also introduced a new theme around uh, the next big thing, referring to segments of the market that would drive returns over the coming decade. decade. So on this slide, uh, you see that we, I, we've identified four areas where we see the greatest opportunities, which are fintech, health tech, uh, green tech, and 5G. So I'll just spend maybe a minute walking through uh, our thinking on each. 
starting with fintech, right? We're seeing how technology is revolutionizing financial services, especially in payments. Consumers are using less cash and opting for more digital methods like contactless cards uh, and mobile. The pandemic has definitely accelerated this trend as more consumers turn to online shopping when stores uh, were closed. And we think that fintech revenues can nearly triple in, in the coming decade. On health tech, the explosion of telemedicine due to the pandemic has shown how new technology will help bring uh, healthcare into the 21st century. Like looking over the next five years, we expect U.S. telemedicine revenues to grow at a double-digit annual rate um, as health maintenance becomes an ongoing process rather than a once-per-year visit to a doctor for most people. And when it comes to uh, green tech, Governments around the world, from China to the European Union, have committed themselves to achieving carbon neutrality by the middle of the century, and we see President-like Biden's policies as an incremental uh, positive as well. So achieving these targets will require substantial public and private investment, and we see opportunities in renewable energies like solar and wind, uh, battery technologies, and of course a greater role for hydrogen in industrial applications. Um, lastly, uh, you know, many of the innovative fields that I've mentioned would, of course, not be possible without the enabling technology of 5G. We've seen some 5G capabilities in new smartphones, but the application of 5G extends well beyond that, right? For example, the higher download speeds of 5G makes some of the futuristic ideas that we talk about more possible. And this includes autonomous driving and remote surgical capabilities. The 5G really has the potential to revolutionize how we interact with uh, technology in our daily lives. So um, maybe, Mark, I'll just stop there, um, and I'm happy to take any questions if we have time. Since I know that you can't stick around as, as long, maybe we'll take questions on, on Salida and maybe what Stephen also hit upon, and then we'll move on to the to the panel. And quick quick questions on what we just uh, shared. Yeah, uh, Mark, a, a real quick one. Um, Salida, really really like your your comment about global growth moving people out of safe havens. And one one aspect of that, I've noticed that the yen has had a remarkable appreciation over the last number of months. Typically, that's a safe haven currency. Do you have any thoughts on that? Sorry to come out of left field, but just curious. Yeah, no, like when we look at our um, sort of our currency view in terms of diversifying outside of dollar, right, we're looking at each and we see the most potential um, for for euro. We're still waiting on, on the, you know, better news on Brexit. But yen is one of those where we think it's probably going to lose some of that appreciation because, yes, it has a lot more of the safe haven um, you know, safe haven characteristics to it. And, um, it's, it's, it's one that, you know, our clients looking at, but it's not necessarily, um, you know, when we're diversifying outside of dollar, it's not necessarily one that we are, uh, heavily going into over the next year. Thank you. Okay. Um, let me go one. We'll look at. One before you leave. One was about how, what about stable coins as a store value alternative to gold and U.S. Uh, and U.S. dollar and your views on 
Bitcoin crypto? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we are looking at it, but, you know, so far it's not, uh, it's not something we have, uh, given serious thoughts in terms of, um, a place that we would recommend to our clients. Um, I know there's a huge following and, 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 and support behind it. Uh, but, you know, we're still focusing more on the, um, the, the regular currencies and shying away from commenting on the Bitcoin. This from the official perspective. And, and, and what about gold? Gold. Uh, so we we like gold. Um, like I said in in my comments earlier, I think gold is the best hedge against negative real rates, uh, especially in this you know new monetary paradigm. Uh, right, we're gonna keep on seeing. Uh, more fiscal stimulus coming and also monetary policy uh, supporting that fiscal stimulus, keeping rates low as long as they can, not just the short term, but trying to keep the curve um, as flat as possible to be able to make that financing cheaper. I think gold will have support uh, behind it. And also, you know, in an environment where we expect the U.S. dollar to be weaker, that's also supportive for gold. You know, we have seen gold reach about 2000 this year. Uh, maybe the gains in the near term uh, might not be as as high as um, we have seen in the last year. Um, but I think even when we see the economic growth picking up this year, I still think the uh, central banks will be accommodative. Uh, I don't see a big decline in gold. Uh, and I think, you know, I believe portfolios should all have some allocation. There's going to be a lot of support behind it. Um, it, it might be sideways for a little while, but I think for the long term, um, I'm a big supporter of gold. Great. Well, th thank you for your, if you could stick around, please do. We've have uh, some other perspectives. One uh, from Greg Schuler, who's the CIO from the University of Pittsburgh, runs a $4 billion plus endowment as to how he's at looking at 2021 and allocating. Greg, do you mind uh, sharing your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Mark. I mean, if I could start off, I'll share one thought and then drill into it from there. I would say we're very optimistic about 2021, and I think that um, feels uncomfortable given everything that we've seen in the stock market over the last six months. But I do think we're at the very beginning of a rotation, and I wouldn't cr say it's as simple as value versus growth. I think you have to drill down way deeper than that. And um, I worked at Sun Microsystems during the uh, tech bubble of 1998 to 2001, and I do think there's a lot of analogies now. We clearly aren't at the same valuation levels, but I think the IPOs that we've seen over the last two weeks where we're approaching 50 times sales is starting to move towards what we saw um, in 1999, you know, we clearly saw things at 100 times, but I think as we move towards 50, I think clearly we're at elevated levels that are totally disconnected from fundamentals. And I think the biggest sign of this is the fact that we see companies discontinuing IPOs last week. I think that's a very important signal. And so I think the rotation that we're, we're positioning ourselves for is the movement away from the big winners in technology into the consumer cyclicals. And I think there are some very broad areas of opportunities in consumer cyclicals. I think casinos are a great example. Wind's very cheap. We all know airlines are very cheap. 
Um, the cruise lines still are extremely cheap. Um, financials have had seen a strong rally, but I think they're relatively cheap as well. And so that play that we're pushing very aggressively in our portfolio is this rotation away from expensive tech into more consumer cyclical stocks around the world. And I would echo Salito's view that uh, uh, emerging markets is very attractive and we're pushing this theme very aggressively into emerging markets as well. So that's the optimism we feel in the short run. I think we have a longer term level of optimism too in um, what you would call green tech. And we think there's uh, two very important themes that we're gonna focus on in 2021. One of them is the continued transition to natural gas driven technologies. That could be something as simple as a cogen power plant in emerging markets, or it could be the conversion of natural gas into automobile fuel, which is an investment we made last year. And we're gonna to continue to look for those themes. I think the other one is around um, efficiency and the continued drive in the near term to improve economic efficiency to lower greenhouse gas emissions. We think that's another very important theme that we're pushing very hard. So, but our big prediction for 2021 is the continued rotation we've seen over the last month away from expensive tech into more consumer cyclicals and the returns that'll drive both domestically and in emerging markets. That's great. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. Let, let's move on. Mark Yusko, uh, if you could take the stage and, um, you know, share your, your views on 2021. Yeah, sure. I, um, I would say, I hate to be the skunk at the garden party, but uh, I think um, the optimism is probably a little over ebullient. Um, yeah, I think Greg's exactly right. The the uh, similarities to 2000 in the in the public markets, the public equity markets are are pretty extraordinary. In fact, we're we're worse than 2000. Uh, there are companies trading not at 50 times sales. Um, but at, at uh, 400 times sales. Now, my son happens to work for that company called Snowflake, so I'm not really unhappy for him, but uh, it's silly for companies to sell at, uh, you know, the, the company we're using right now, the product we're using right now, Zoom, uh, trades close to 140 times sales, not 140 times revenues, I mean, uh, times earnings, because they, they actually don't have any earnings, and there's no prospect uh, of, of having earnings in a lot of these companies. Um, you know, I won't even go into Tesla, which is a cult in and of itself. But I, I think the, um, the economic recovery is, uh, falling flat on its face, uh, all around the world. Uh, you're seeing that in, in all the leading economic indicators. Uh, you're seeing it at interest rates. We have the highest level of negative interest yielding bonds in history, over 20 trillion. Just let that number sink in for a second and remember that a trillion is a dollar every second for 31,710 years. So $20 trillion of government bonds have negative interest rates. And one of the things I think that's happening, uh, and we, we actually completely agree on the, the negative view on the dollar. The dollar is toast. Uh, the Fed has declared war on the U.S. dollar. It's the only way out, right? When you have excessive debt, which every Western economy has, you only have four ways out, right? You can, can pay back the debt. That isn't going to happen. You can restructure the debt. That's not going to happen because you'd have to have somebody accept the restructuring. You can default on the debt. That's not happening because then the government, the people in government get kicked out. 
or you can inflate it away. And that's exactly what's happening. And so there is a race to the bottom all around the world. Every currency is being devalued, except the, the hard money, which is gold and ultimately Bitcoin. And the money illusion that's going on, right? The nominal value of stocks appears higher, right? So over the last three years, since January of 2018, equities appear to be higher, right? They're up about four and a half percent compounded over that period. Four and a half percent, that's a terrible return. Well, yes, it is. And it's worse than that because that's only denominated in dollars. If you denominate in real money, gold, you're down about 20%. If you denominate in Bitcoin, you're down a lot. Um, best performing asset this year, um, surprise, surprise, again, is Bitcoin, um, up 170%. It was the best performing asset last year. It was the best performing asset the last five years. It's the best performing asset the last 10 years. Um, so that's not true. Over the last 10 years, it's collectible Porsches, which is actually really interesting because they're very scarce and only Jerry Seinfeld and, and Jay Leno can afford to buy them. But um, I, I really think the uh, idea that we're going to have a global recovery when lockdowns are accelerating, you know, we're about to go into total lockdown in New York City, right? They've just banned indoor dining. Uh, California, um, massive lockdowns. Um, so I think the the challenge for investors is going to be in a world where interest rates are not going to rise. They're actually going to fall. They're going to trend to zero everywhere in the world. So long duration treasuries, particularly long duration Chinese government bonds, might be one of the best investments uh, going. And then uh, you look what's going to happen to to equities at valuations that, again, on, on no normal uh, level of, of analysis could you justify. In the S&P 500 today sells at 37.4 times earnings. It's never traded at that level, and that's trailing. Uh, everybody says, oh, earnings are going to recover. Well, Earnings likely are not going to recover dramatically. They're down about 13% this year. Um, and while, again, I completely agree with Greg that there are segments and pockets, particularly in value, that are extremely attractive. Energy, traditional energy, uh, might be one of the best performing assets over the next 12 months by far. Uh, there's some incredibly uh, cheap assets in that space. And fossil fuels are not going away anytime soon. Mark, sorry to, every... sorry to interrupt. I just want to keep a, a few more people to, with perspectives. But oh, I, sure. You're, you're like a freight train that could, could just go, <laughs> keep going. And I, I, I love All right. It. I'll leave you with one word, Mark, <clears throat> and that is and that is digital assets. Or I guess that's two words. Digital assets uh, is the big trend for 2021. Fair, fair enough. So let's uh, – Fred Greer sitting in Roanoke, Virginia, running a $2 billion pension as he tries to steward that capital – if you could, your view on 2021. I'm going to, I'm going to do my David Letterman. You're on mute and then you're still on mute. Thanks, Mark. Um, we're generally bullish uh, going into 2021. Um, uh, similar to comments uh, from, from Greg as well. Uh, seeing some analogies to the late nineties. I think one big difference today is um, the level of, 
interest rates. So the 10-year Treasury is at about 0.9%, 30-year, 1.6%. At the end of 98, um, the 10-year was 47 30-year was 5.1%. And then you have um, the stimulus uh, from the government as well as the vaccine um, distribution. And I think that that is probably one aspect we think is maybe underestimated, just the um, pent-up demand and excitement people have about going back to a normal uh, daily um, living, going out to dinner, um, vacations. We think that's going to help propel the markets up. I think it's going to be one of those scenarios where you know people recognize valuations are stretched, but they could get stretched further before um, before there's there's a turn turn down. I think also the rotation um, aspect. We we came into this year with a va- value bias that that ha- that hasn't worked. Um, we started to see a rotation in November. So in the U.S., the Russell 1000 growth is up 33% year to date. The Russell 1000 value is up. It's flat, basically up 0.2%. And on the international versus U.S., the S&P mm-hmm. is up about 14% this year. The EFA developed markets outside the U.S. is up 3%. So we think there's going to be rotation into international and continued um, rotation into the, the cyclicals, um, particularly as valuations um, are high in general. As investors start to scrutinize valuations more, um, there's probably going to be more interest in international markets and, and value markets, both of which have underperformed kind of the broad U.S. in the last uh, several years. And we're, um, we're focused on the private side. We have an allocation of approximately 25% no liquid investments. We actually have that tilted more on the fixed income side, given where, given where yields are. And on the equity side, we're, we're focused more on early stage venture um, as opposed to, you know, buyout and late stage venture where we, we think there's more um, crowding in that space. So, I don't see Esther here at the moment, but uh, but let's get carry on to you, Eric, uh, playing a little bit of a cleanup role. Which really, you, you whether you go first or last, you're still going to speak your mind. Well, I just got done. I sold everything and bought Bitcoin and uh, long uh, Chinese uh, government treasuries based on uh, Mark's uh, uh, freaking me out there with that uh, with that input. Um, so just actually, and Mark specifically responding to that and says some of these, some of the comments about interest rates and, uh, and, and government debt policy. I'll just kind of tell, I'll give just a personal perspective and like a, a dumb story, um, which is, you know, I love economics, um, and have always acutely tried to understand, um, what these government macro policies and, and levels of government borrowing are going to do to the economy and, and to, to my investing. And, and I've been interested in that for more than 25 years. Uh, in 1994, uh, I was a brand new uh, second year analyst at the Blackstone Group in the very early days there. <clears throat> and it was small enough that I got taken to lunch by Pete Peterson, um, who, of course, was chairman of that firm. Uh, and he had Henry Kissinger uh, along with him. And we had, had lunch at the, the Four Seasons, the old Four Seasons restaurant on Park Avenue. And I remember vividly 40 minutes of those two individuals, of, of Kissinger and Peterson, um, giving this absolutely draconian lecture 
about the Clinton administration's grossly irresponsible government debt policies that were going to sink the entire U.S. and global economy if if budget if if uh, if budget deficits and and government debt levels were not arrested. Um, and and I, I believed it then, and I was super cautious, and I've always been. Um, you know, super, uh, super bearish about irresponsible government spending and government borrowing. And I am here, you know, 25, 26 years later. And it seems, I, I, I only point out um, that, that in, in my experience and looking back many decades, there are incredibly smart prognosticators. And I continue to give kind of the same overall caution about, about particularly the stimulus spending in the U.S. and in the West. I mean, the amount of debt that's being incurred is completely bonkers. Um, I continue to wait since 1994. I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop um, on, on irresponsible government borrowing. It doesn't seem to happen. So it, there's almost something that seems a little mysterious to me is that how the hell these governments continue uh, to, you know, continue to meander on year to year and, and engage in that, um, in that behavior. Um, Mark, a couple of other just sort of macro comments. Um, I said this a little bit, uh, a little bit earlier. Um, you know, I, I, one thing I would point out is, and, and you can observe this uh, uh, analytically in some parts of the United States today, um, that, that I think we all tend to, humans, uh, tend to underestimate the tendency to return to the mean, to return to familiar and normal behavior that is deeply built in. You know, how many times have we all heard, this is the new normal, everything's going to be on Zoom or whatever the hell it is. It's right, like all the time you're hearing this. Um, there's a lot of pent up demand in a lot of consumers um, to return to going out, going to bars, going to restaurants, going to Disney. I, I, I am not a, a big, robust optimist about what's going to happen with, with spending into 21, 22. But I think that there are going to be selected consumer sectors and areas where there's going to be a, a big return to spend into, uh, into, into, into specific uh, categories in the economy. But I couple that with um, with two negatives, uh, personally, one is um, that, and, and it was interesting, uh, Salida made the comment earlier that, mm -hmm. that, that a divided Senate is going to constrain the Biden administration's ability to implement more business regulation. Um, I have a different view, which is an awful lot of that is done by executive order. Um, and the Biden administration is clearly coming and feeling they have a mandate to undo a lot of the Trump era deregulation. I think you're going to see a lot of business regulatory um, uh, implementations that are going to arrest particularly small and medium sized business growth. And, and I'm also I, you know, I still wait for anyone to, to show me. What are the macro drivers of growth and economic efficiency that we could look to in the U.S. and developed markets that are going to be really creating intrinsically new wealth and spending? I think those opportunities are limited. So I, I remain, again, I remain very bullish on, on individual categories. I think you need to be very selective. Um, you know, everybody uh, uh, who's heard me before, you know, will hear me say, you know, cannabis continues to be an area that there is simply intrinsic growth and demand in, in a radical change in the regulatory environment that is going to accelerate. You have 68% of American adults now say they favor, favor legalization. That is a tidal wave of behavior change that is going to impact uh, a lot of growth in cannabis, but also a, a slowdown, I think, alcohol, tobacco, uh, pharma. I would be concerned about, um, about cannabis' impact on on those categories, and then, and Mark, I'll uh, I'll wrap up with this comment, um, and and this is kind of a a social comment. Uh, we haven't talked about this at all in an, from an investing standpoint, but I think it's super relevant to to every person that receives information in the modern era. 
uh, Mark, I said my, my word for 2021 is disinformation. Uh, and, and the reason I say that, that is not fake news. That's not been, right left or anything saying, else. You've been saying that since March. I, I have, I have all these recorded. And, and it is recorded. I, I will continue to go on the record. Uh, and I'm sorry to pick on people. Jeff Zucker, Suzanne Scott, um, these other media executives, they are going to make their bonuses in 2021, 20, uh, 2022, 2023. And, and people do not realize the extent to which all forms of information delivery globally have become for-profit businesses who are, who are focused entirely on saying and doing anything necessary to drive increasing ratings, increasing viewership, and increasing revenue for themselves. And it's a really disturbing amount of skew, in my view, that is creating this perception of polarization and, like, social meltdown. When you actually look at the statistics, and humanity today is actually in a position of unparalleled, unbelievable success that we should be celebrating, not angry at each other. What are the questions for uh, Stephen Burke, uh, Salida, uh, Mark, Greg, Eric, Fred. Hey, hey Mark, it's, uh, it's Rob Colorini here. Just a quick thought. I think we talked last week or the week before on um, on um, Airbnb, and you know that IPO turned up to be three times uh, the 33 billion valuation. I think we were talking about. I think reflective a little bit of Eric's comments of the consumer spend. Um, do any of the panelists have some thoughts on that in terms of? Um, uh, either the community seeing sort of light at the end of the tunnel on that, or does that touch other areas like real estate and the consumer um, consumer confidence side? It's Rob, let me let me take that a little bit. That I actually don't think the the stock price outcome reflects anything to do with reality. I mean, I I clearly think that Airbnb's business is recovering. Um, and and it actually has been, you know, I stayed in an Airbnb for six weeks, drove out to California to see my daughter when she was having her baby and, you know, no problems at all. Uh, so I think that business model is fine. The challenge is, you know, the valuation of the stock is silly and it's it's like other silly valuations. And, and I think the problem is we've dissociated four letter ticker symbols from companies. You know, we got we got uh, the guy, Davey Dave, you know, day trader pulling Scrabble tiles out of a bag and buying the stock and people buy it, too. That's not investing. That's that's silly. So I, I think that's that's what's going on is we have this we have a lot of liquidity. We have uh, it chasing a, a small number of, quote unquote, can't miss companies. But, you know, uh, Howard Marks has a great line, right? There's no investment you can't screw up by paying too high a price. And, you know, someone earlier, I think, Greg, you were saying you worked for, for Sun Microsystems, right? There, there, was, there was a time back uh, in 2000 where Sun sold at the, uh, you know, lofty level of, of 10 times revenues. And the CEO came out and said, look, for, to make an economic return, paying me 10 times revenues, I'd actually have to give you all of my uh, revenue for the next 10 years which is kind of hard because I have employees and I have to pay taxes and I have cost of goods sold. And the stock went down 98% over the next few years. And that happened to a lot of stocks. Cisco was 286 times earnings, went down, you know, 94%. So I, I that's coming. You know, I can't tell you when, but, uh, you know, these valuations are, are at levels that are incomprehensible 
And the, the argument on, on interest rates justifying the higher multiples breaks down when you get below the whole Fed model idea, breaks down below 2% interest rates. Think about it. Low interest rates are not a sign of economic prosperity and growth. They're a sign of economic weakness. Name a country in the world that has strong economy that has low interest rates. You won't find one. Um. Hi, Hi Steve McCarthy, Mark. No, wait, wait, one second, Steve. Steve let's let her uh, quickly answer. Yeah, I, I, I just want to jump in, not specifically on Airbnb, but on the IPO market. Um, I think, you know, I have a little bit of a different view in terms of whether we're in this bubble or whether it's better or worse than 2000. I don't think that the IPO market, I mean, I think it's very different from the craze that we have seen during the dot-com Boom. Clearly, we got a lot of attention with these names. Um, you know, I think on average, the first day return this year uh, on these IPOs is about 45%, and it's the highest since 2000. So I certainly understand the worry about it. But I think there are a couple ways that I see how it's different uh, than the craziness in 2000. So first of all, um, the volume of IPOs going public today is much lower, and the characteristics, I think, are very different. Um, you know, we've done some work recently around this. So in the lead-up to the dot-com bubble, there were over 400 IPOs each year. Now it averages between 100 and 150 per year. And these companies are much older on average, around 10 to 12 years, compared to the maybe two- to three-year-old companies going public back then. They're also larger and more established, um, I think companies were going public after two rounds of VC financing in t- 2000. Today, they have six or seven rounds before they go public. And I think the second difference is um, a smaller number of companies means that they face much tougher investor scrutiny. Uh, we've seen those bigger names with questionable business models either have their IPOs pulled, like WeWork, right, or the market reaction has been more muted uh, like in the case of Uber and Lyft. And the last point I want to make here is that economic growth was much stronger in the late 90s. No one was talking about secular stagnation. And that's the dominant macro narrative today, right, which is why the demand for growth stocks has been so strong for the last five years. This could change if we see a sustained rise in global economic growth. But, you know, until then, I think tech and growth stocks will continue to have um, – a strong bid from investors, which means demand for IPO stocks will probably stay quite high for, for the foreseeable foreseeable future. So a little bit of a different perspective of what might feel like 2000, but there are differences. Well, Salita, can I ask you a question there? So I, I don't I don't disagree with with the point that <laughs> that people are buying these assets. There they, there is demand. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that at all, but Help me with the economic rationale. Uh, let's just take let's take uh, Snowflake. What's the economic rationale to pay 400 times revenue for a company that lost 350 million dollars on 250 million dollars of revenue, and now is is you know got a valuation of 140 billion dollars? Help me with the math. Just, just the analytics of, of how I can ever, as a shareholder, get a return on that investment. 
No, I, I, I hear your point on a company by company basis, maybe, and I, um, I'm not looking sp- specifically. I, I'm not analyzing individual companies. I have analysts that mm-hmm. do that, but I can't speak to it uh, in this case. Um, the, I, all I'm saying is the, the market itself. Uh, the question about the bubble uh, seems a little bit premature. Maybe we will get there, um, but over the next year. But at this point. There are a lot of differences uh, compared to a period that we remember as a bubble. The economics on this company, I'm not looking, like I said, specifically to Snowflake. Maybe the, the, the rationale is not there for Snowflake. But maybe for Air, Airbnb, I'm a user of Airbnb, maybe there is for Airbnb, right? Um, so, so, I mean, we can analyze one by one, but I, I still think that there is there's time for us to um, shun the entire um market as a, as, as a bubble. So thank you all of you for your comments. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that from Salida's, you know, I, I appreciate the last point, which is, you know, the macro veneer that's over the market that uh, may be clouding the individual performance uh, behavior. Uh, Eric, I think your comments regarding Dr. Kissinger and Pete Peterson bring a very practical uh, a view of, of, of the world um, is long lost. Uh, and, and certainly, Mark, I agree with your comments. So, so as I sit and I think about two data points, some data point in February of 2020, Jim, pre-coronavirus. Jim, because I love you and know you, you got to really hit it because we, we have to transition. I understand. Uh, to, to the data point of today, and other than emotion that we think we have a vaccine, um, what's the difference, right? The market is at an all-time high uh, and the, the fundamentals haven't changed uh, at all other than behavior. And especially the behavior as we're entering into the largest phase three clinical trial without a control study and having no clue what's going to happen when we find out that people with kidney problems or heart problems or you know, are going to be negatively affected and people are going to die because of this panacea, you know, it's not a wooden stake. So I, I don't know who takes that, but I'm trying to get my head wrapped around this. Who wants to take that quickly? I'm just going to second that emotion. We have no we have no data on on safety effort or efficacy. Hor- Can I horrifying. say something about the about the vaccine for a second? Um, I maybe a few years since I've gotten the data on flu vaccines in general, uh, but if I'm not mistaken, at least up to 2015, no flu vaccine had ever gone through an FDA trial. It never had a control. Because every year the vaccine is completely different. So we have to keep that in mind. Thank you. Let's consider that a question, not the answer right now. Uh, I know Mark and Stephen, you had some questions, but I want to keep us on pace. You know, we, we, we do get together every Tuesday, as you know, and continue these, these discussions. I'm going to hit a button. We're all going to go to breakouts. Um, and I'm, and I'm asking you, we'll take, take, you know, take three, four or five minutes to get and I'll put on the screen, you know, how, how it works. Uh, and maybe you all remember, but this, this time around, it's, 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 uh, we get together, you, uh, you know, m- m- still with about introductions and, and your asks, cause that's sort of what we do, we do all the time. That's our messy magical thing. Uh, who's, who's trying, looking for what, you know, capital deals, whatever, but focus on a prediction as you introduce yourself. Your point of view, whether it's Bob Winsphere and sitting in Dallas and, you know, it seems like everybody's moving from Silicon Valley to 
to Texas, you know, you can talk about that. Whatever it is, um, you know, people in Singapore are saying that, you know, we, we have we have more tailwinds than headwinds than you have and all the rest. But I'm going to hit a button. We're going to let each other interact uh, as we as we do. Let me uh, go back over here. Just one second. And uh, we'll come back here. And at 1230, uh, we will have um, a uh, an opportunity to, to, to get back and talk about the foundation bits and then exchange everything in a, in a, in a town hall debrief. So with that, uh, I'm opening the rooms. They're all being assigned. Welcome back, everybody. Waiting for all the rooms to close. Okay. So room by room, um, I'm just looking at uh, you, Greg, because you popped up. Seems like your prediction won favor. You want to? Who's who's sharing it? You or, or someone else? I think it's Mark. Mark, you want me to go or you want to go? Go for it. It's your theme. Go for All it. Right. Um, so I think it's the continued theme of cyclicals winning out here, and it doesn't necessarily have a short tech against it, but it's consumer demand will be much stronger than expected in the second half, and that'll drive all cyclical sectors such as energy, uh, travel, uh, travel hotels, um, restaurants. So it's a theme of cyclicals outperforming significantly the rest of the market. Is there a debt play for this too, um, or this is all pure equity? No, Mark, we're greedy. We, we're, we're going all equity here. All right, that's that's Craig's room. I'm looking at you, Charles, but I don't know who's who's speaking for your room. You're on mute. Sorry. Um, we kind of went um, and took a tour around the world. We kind of talked about a lot of different things. Talked about blockchain and cryptocurrency and and their relevance in today's space. How in the accounting world, this new paradigm of COVID-19 impacts the economic environment and just talks about how athletics, um, professional sports, um, that the valuations, if they are impacted by the COVID environment, I, I told them, and um, I think Richard was in the room as well. He says that the valuations are still higher than ever in professional sports. We do feel as though because now there is a vaccine, they will bounce back um, and generate as much revenue, if not more than when they started because of, I mean, people want to get back out and, and get back to some sense of normalcy. And I think fans love, will better appreciate now going to games and actually seeing live events as opposed to watching them on TV. How about that Browns game? And, and, that, and that was one of my best case examples here in, the, uh, in America. Uh, football, that's why football is number one, because you get only one exciting game per week to see so it makes you earn to for you can't wait till next Sunday so you have seven days in between the next event so that's exciting who's next just raise your hand and go for it well uh, this is this is this is Rob here I'll start off and then um, to have gender diversity I'm uh, I will have Andrea kind of close but we were really lucky to have Fred um, on our uh, in our breakout from the hospital system 
because we started off talking about um, on, on on COVID uh, on COVID community and even just the um, the, uh, the mentality within the hospital system, and we even got further talk about vaccine. Um, the um, the dialogue on um, on uh, cash position came out from uh, from um, Dave in Seattle um, for both you know different organizations and then personal looking at things and you know the Airbnb situation came up of of let's say richly priced situations but the fact that a lot of us have not been going out and and traveling and you know there's a little bit of uh, cash stored up that uh, that uh, that can be used opportunistically for growth or for um, uh, uh, mispriced type assets in the roll-up. Um, I'm going to shift to Andrea um, a, a little bit on, on 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 technology and SPACs and and and, um, and fossil fuels. Andrea, you're muted, Andrea. Oh, okay. Here we go. Uh, along the lines of the IPO vis-a-vis Airbnb, we were also we also touched on SPACs and how this year. I think more capital has been raised with the SPACs over 100 than the last entire decade combined. But there wasn't a consensus among the group, the breakout group, that a bubble is around the corner, um, presumably because there's so much capital. But, you know, the, the, the sort of counter against that is, you know, these big tech companies might be broken up and might sort of shake the market quite a bit. And then we also touched on uh, fossil fuel and how even if some of these oil, big oil and gas companies have to divest, including the Rockefellers, but they did it on their own, um, whereas others may be required to do so, I, I don't know that they'll be hurting as much as uh, we might think because they hold on to a fair amount of green tech, uh, the, excuse me, the green tech, um, IP. So just as, you know, when Standard Oil was broken up, uh, they ended up, you know, being, they ended up having sort of multiple companies and ended up making more as a result. So not sure what this means for big tech companies, should they be broken up, but it remains to be seen. So we don't really have sort of a definitive prediction as to what's going to happen, but these, these are some open questions. Great. And, and, and who's next? And by the way, I'm buying time because Salome, where she is, she has an alarm. So hey, Mark, like, before they before you go to the next one, can I just second the emotion on SPACs? SPACs have become the number one way for high growth companies to go public. We think the SPAC uh, trend is is got a lot of legs, and there are multiple ways to play SPACs. And uh, if anyone's interested, reach out. We've done a you, lot of work here. You have a, you have a SPAC in the works? Well, we have a we have a SPAC. Plus fund that does SPAC arbitrage, and then we are actually launching a SPAC ETF in January. Seems Mark, like how do you feel about the valuations on the SPACs relative to other investments that you're looking at? SPAC valuations come out significantly lower um, because you're you're having to. It's a good old fashioned, you know, minority stake in a in a, a real business. Um, there are certainly bad valuations in the SPAC space, the ones that have gone up 40, 50, like DraftKings, right? We invested in DraftKings in the pre-IPO. Um, you know, at 20 bucks, it was expensive. At, at 60 bucks, it's crazy. But you make a lot of money when it goes from, you know, 10 to $20. So, but there, in every segment of the market, there are excesses, but SPACs overall, valuations are significantly lower. 
Thank you. So who's next? I'll go. Go for it. Hey, Mark. Yeah, so uh, Jerry Connolly here. We were in uh, breakout group number four. We had Doug Jones, Mark White, and uh, Torin uh, Kutnick. All some very, very interesting and robust discussions. I'm going to let Doug talk about his unique insight, but we talked about real estate, multifamily, uh, retail. Uh, we talked about solar power, alternative energy delivery systems, and then we talked about healthcare tech, ag tech. Um, all very, very good um, ideas out there. Torrin talked about, you know, the best place to be right now is, is probably alternative energy delivery systems. Um, and he talked more specifically about solar power. Uh, Mark White has his own early stage VC company, not only representing money, but also consulting. And his whole thing is healthcare tech is going to be sort of the unifier of a whole ecosystem, um, which I think makes sense. And I'm going to turn it over to Doug Jones because he, out of everybody, we all agreed that he gave some unique insight into the uh, real estate market that we all were not aware of. Over to you, Doug. I, I vehemently opposed this idea because I thought that, uh, you know, it doesn't really go with everything. I think all of them were in health tech. And so my idea was so mundane that they thought it was unique, I guess. But, um, <laughs> What what we see in uh, the real estate that I'm invested in is that um, people are making through in a variety of ways, and um, you know we were quite shocked to see how many not for profits stepped up to help people make their rent payments, and how retail uh, tenants, you know, also managed to make their way through as well. So it was just a different, uh, you know, kind of a a short short view of what's happening just over the next six or nine months until we get past the vaccine, I guess. But uh, really, at the end of the day, I think our group thought that health tech was a uh, sector that had a lot of upside and uh, had so many different angles to uh, to to work on. So uh, leave it at that. Fair enough. Yeah, I was in a group with Allison Smith, uh, Mark Jarvis, Rich Sobel, Pedro Blanco, and uh, Dominic Ward. But, um, there were, you know, there were a lot of thoughts about uh, how how difficult. My conclusion is how difficult it was to uh, figure out uh, where to um, where to invest because uh, Allison um, saw that uh, there were a lot of uncorrelated assets and valuations and. And, and it, it didn't tie together into one holistic uh, view of e- widespread economic growth. And then uh, another uh, topic of conversation that we focused on quite long is uh, emerging, uh, emerging markets opportunity. And, you know, there seems to be the view um, among um, Mark and uh, Rich that emerging markets is not a sector opportunity, but it's uh, as well as Pedro. Uh, but it, it can uncover pinpoint opportunities, especially if these companies are focused on global uh, macro tech trends, for example, and they're replicating a, a, a technology in a, in a, in a new market, uh, an, an existing uh, established technology in a new market, uh, leapfrogging within that, um, microcosm could cause really great returns on the, on that company's value. And then, uh, we, and then Dominic had a lot of great things to say about crypto, crypto and how it's become a, an institutional asset class and a, and a real store of value similar to um, 
gold in a lot of places around the world. And Allison, um, you were going to back me up, so I'm going to let you uh, <laughs> fill in what I missed. Oh, I think you did a great job. Great. Who's next? And Zach Nasser, keep keep me apprised of in Solome. Maybe we'll let her go last. Uh, I'll go next, Mark. We had a really great group, fun conversation. Kind of like two sides for a conversation, actually. The first side was a little more philosophical in the sense that we were discussing almost like in 2021, on the back of COVID, the business case for humanity as a service with this kind of desire towards and looking towards social impact, um, uh, recognizing very what we talked about last week on our own panel, the empathetic nature and the generational shift that's happening as consumers and as with the extraordinary buying power. How do you wrap all that up into looking at ways and companies and products and services that truly look to amplify humanity? So we were discussing the in-depth nature of that as a business case for 2021 and what could that mean? Um, I think we were kind of generally agree. We were kind of tepid on the, the excitement over the ability to get back to normal as the vaccine has more of elongated trunk and rolling out. Uh, on the asset side, I think we all agree we're definitely long on digital assets and the viewpoint for 2021. And we had a pretty robust discussion around the idea of valuations and on the back of the conversation on Airbnb, uh, how disconnected are traditional equity valuation methods from companies of today that are coming to market when you're not investing on the multiple of revenue or earnings, but you're investing on the absolute massive potential for scalable growth. And not only is it scalable growth, but it's new markets. So we talked specifically about Airbnb displacing revenue from the hotel industry. But it's not simply the case of displacement of revenue, but it's also new revenue for people that love the use case of Airbnb because it's a personal experience. So I may not have stayed at a hotel previously, but I will do an Airbnb. So what is that untapped potential and growth there? And then how do you evaluate such a thing and justify what seems like a crazy valuation like the Airbnb came to market and getting comfortable with that and as recurrence for equities coming to market over the future? So that kind of wrapped up what we had discussion about. Great. Thanks, Denise. Who's next? Don't be shy. At least four more rooms. I do want to uh, hit on the philanthropy out of F. Solomay's back on uh, quickly. Who, who else? Vladimir, do we have your, your room done? We talked about Sudba. Anyone know, know the Russian word Sudba? It uh, means, yeah. means fate. Yeah, of course. You were on, who, why did I use that, that expression, Vladimir? You're on mute. Yeah, no, no, sorry. What's the, what's the question? I I use the expression Sudba because you had connected with somebody. Can't, can't. Absolutely, with Daniel Wolf, right? <laughs> I'm a, a Russian in Saudi Arabia. There is another, I guess, American in Russia. So this is kind of a connection. <laughs> no, I think it was also. This is Cam. Uh, I sent a text to Vladimir when he asked a few questions on the chat. And then later on, I end up on the same room with him. So then you came in, Mark, and you said, this is still the best. I mean, space. <laughs> so who, who's next? Is it your, have you done, have you guys gone yet? I think you did. Yeah. Um, who, who else? Because I want to talk about one thing really important. Has everyone spoken? Yeah. Uh, room seven hasn't gone yet. Um, okay. Trevor, go. 
uh, it was really led by Stephen and uh, some economic uh, thoughts, but while it veered around the world, I think we spent probably half, two thirds of our time primarily on the idea of uh, what is the consumer going to do and how is that going to tip off investment strategy with uh, vaccine versus, you know, prospective permanent changes for work from home to uh, the social dilemma to um, how will office work look in the future, et cetera, and trying to take the cue off of, and by the way, not knowing the answer yet, what will the consumer do and then how will that, uh, you know, veer its way into um, how we invest uh, in the, well, I guess in the short to medium term and then potentially in the long term. So more of a question than a than an answer. Yeah, more of a bit of a, a you know a fun debate. No, no, that's it's, it's which is fine. Maybe that's the make of a of a, an event we should do. Yeah. Anyone else? I want to I want to sort of have Zach and and Sarah uh, show spotlight. But we have have we done your your room yet, Sarah? That was Denise. Okay. You were just extra quiet. I know it. Shocker, right? right? Yeah. Okay. Anyone else before we, we, we turn turn to the – and I don't see Solomay on here yet, do I? So, Zach, you, want, you and Sarah want to – I've got something. Uh, I'm just going to flash, and if we miss anybody, let me know. Can uh, I – you want me to go with it? Yeah, I was just going to also, Zach put some interesting slides together, or there's two. two. Oh, uh, go ahead, Zach, you go first. Zach, go ahead. Yes. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, this is just like a quick recap of all the philanthropy um, efforts we did this year. Um, and not just this year, like it uh, serves to show that within 361, uh, impact was an interest from a long time ago. Um, I mentioned that the, the root of the trees here, we had minus bio and clean fiber. So there are things we worked on several years from several years back. Manus is like uh, really important for sustainability. Uh, what they do is like a, a process to produce ingredients without the agriculture part, like directly create like fragrances and flavors and whatnot. Clean fiber is like recycling uh, uh, corrugated, uh, you know. Iron Ellsberg is smiling. Yeah, <laughs> uh, insulation, like really quickly on that. So these are just two examples, but there's a lot of like sustainable and impact investments within the community. Um, and then on the right, I see some of the events we had this year um, around different topics, whether it was mental health, education, water. Uh, we had a cocktail uh, mix event one time where we had like uh, Someone talk about amputee athletes. We had someone talk about Africa and like other topics. Um, in a bit, I guess uh, Sarah will talk more about the kickoff event for the 361 Foundation, uh, but that's something getting set up now. Besides that event, it's basically a vehicle for more philanthropy collaboration in the group. Uh, so it could be like uh, doing some grants, doing some events and whatnot uh, under like an actual foundation umbrella. Um, and uh, we are open to more ideas also for the foundation. This is just the beginning. If you could go to the next slide, Mark. Um, 
So uh, the event, Sarah will talk about that, so the one with uh, Jerry Rice. I want to just comment on the right side, which is uh, based on uh, members' interests, like within 361. Um, so you could also fill this in the uh, in the app, I think, so that we have more of your interest areas within uh, philanthropy. Uh, so these were the biggest areas chosen. Uh, actually, out of everyone that's filled their profile, uh, and it's around like based on 60 people, you have no poverty is like the most important thing. Everyone uh, cared for that. Uh, so we'll try to have events around that area. And again, like we mentioned before, if you have existing foundations or charities you work with or you founded, uh, tell us about them, your expertise areas, we'll, we'll collaborate in those areas.